The United States Bullion Depository is a fortified vault located near the United States Army Post of Fort Knox, Kentucky. So the vault is referred to affectionately as simply Fort Knox. The vault is used to store a large portion of the United States official gold reserve and occasionally other precious items that are entrusted to the federal government. Gold bullion, what we mean by that is the brick or another form of mold, is 99.9% pure gold in bulk form, such as bars. It is estimated to hold roughly 2.3% of all the gold ever refined throughout human history. Okay, that's why we use Fort Knox as sort of an illustration of something that is impregnable, something that cannot be broken into. The gold vault is lined with granite walls and a blast-proof door that weighs 22 tons. Okay, why? To protect it against theft. No single person has the entire combination to the vault. Ten different members of the depository have a different combination, and each of them has to to enter that in a code that is supposed to be only known to them. Why? Because people cannot be trusted. Okay, so the, 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 the depravity of man is just going to surface through this simple illustration of Fort Knox. Several fences surround the facility, armed guards are present, and the facility is closed to visitors. You cannot tour Fort Knox. Why? Because people can get very creative when they steal what is valuable. Now, let's be clear. People steal what is not valuable, too. Right? Probably one of my, my favorites is the 350-pound uh, inflatable gorilla that was stolen off the roof of a car dealership. What are you going to do with a... Anyway, the, 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 the point is, even if you could take a tour of Fort Knox, here's what you would not find in the vault. Asphalt. Concrete. There are no minted concrete bars sitting in the vault of Fort Knox. Or gravel. You don't go in there and find 2.3% of all the world's gravel that has ever been you know, made. Why? We protect what we consider great value, right? In our text this morning, we're given a glimpse of a place. A place where the streets are made of what? Pure, not 99.9% gold, but pure gold. What we use, what we, what we just use to sort of resurface and redo some of this parking lot is going to be gold in heaven. Now, the greedy heart, the greedy heart says, wow, that's going to be awesome. It's going to be that prevalent. No, you missed the point. The point is what we consider of great value down here is used for basic material in the new heaven and the new earth. Because the greatest treasure, the greatest worth, the greatest value is what or who? God. See, we, we, you don't hold asphalt in a vault. Okay? Because it's not of any value. Up there, here's what's going to happen. The values of the world and the worth of the world is turned right side up. And we're going to realize that the greatest worth in all the world is not pearl or sapphire or jasper, but it's God. God is the greatest worth 
of all eternity. Here's the main point. The treasure in the new heaven and the new earth is not gold or pearl or jasper, but God. This is what Jesus taught. And here's the question before I read you what Jesus taught. Is that true of you today? Is what you value and what you treasure and what you find great worth in truly God himself? Jesus taught for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What are you ascribing worth to this morning? What is down inside your heart? What, what, what is the treasure of your heart? If those who know you best and they were allowed to be honest with you, what would they say? The Fort Knox of your heart is protecting. Here, here's, a, here's a clue. What do you get angry about? What are you passionate about? Okay. What do you get depressed over? Okay, those are going to start to indicate to people around you what your treasure is. Okay? What is the treasure of your heart? What are you valuing? Here's, here's how we're going to consider the rest of chapter 21 this morning. We're going to look at the appearance of the city. Secondly, the measurements and materials of the city. And third, the conditions of the city. And each one is telling us something about God and something about the life to come. And it's fascinating. If this... If this were a dream, what you're going to see in Revelation 21, if this were a dream, it's a good dream. But it's reality, and as reality, it is magnificent. So let's look at this. Um, Art already read this for us, um, so I'm going to jump right into a comparison. Verses, verses 9 through 14 are, are easily and obviously compared to Chapter 17. Turn back to chapter 17 with me. Chapter 17, look at verse 1. There is a similarity intended here. Then one of the seven angels, I'm reading from Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, who had the seven bowls, okay, similar to what we just saw in Revelation 21, verse 9, came and said to me, says the same thing, come, I will show you the judgment so instead of the bride, the wife of the lamb, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Go back to Revelation chapter 21. And again, look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he, and he says this in both sections, and he carried me by the Spirit. In both places, an angel serves as a guide in these particular visions. In both places, the angel says to John, come, I'm going to show you something. As a guide in both places, the angel shows John the reality of something. He shows John the reality of the beast's empire described as a prostitute. And he shows the reality of God's kingdom, which is pictured as a bride. Okay, two 
two, it's personified, these two cities are personified as women. As a guide that the beast empire in chapter 17, the bride in chapter 21, then John says the angel carried him away, indicating the central role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's, it's the Holy Spirit that unveils this, or we would say reveals, or we would say revelation. Revelation is the unveiling. But there's a contrast, and this contrast is important. When John sees the beast's empire described as a prostitute, he is where? Do you remember this? He is in the wilderness. And when he sees the bride, where is he? The angel takes him up to a very high mountain. Okay, there's this elevated view that as high as you can get from a human standpoint, this city still comes down from heaven. Its origin is God. In the wilderness, its origins at base value are satanic. Okay. Then he calls the bride the wife of the Lamb. This is interesting. The Lamb is central in these last two chapters, mentioned seven times. And the wife of the Lamb builds on this Old Testament imagery when he calls Israel the wife of Yahweh. Okay, there's this covenant relationship between Yahweh, between God, and the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, the church is called what? It's not called, right, it's not called the wife of Yahweh, it's called the bride of Christ. So you have these two pictures of marriage coming together here in this final vision that John receives. So the marriage in heaven in Revelation 21 is not something future and to be waited for the marriage is now here it's a reality so we, we've used this term several times um, as we live right now as we gathered here this morning on the last lord's day of august 2018 um, certain things have already happened okay there's there's an aspect to our salvation that has already happened but it's not yet happened either like we're not yet glorified we're not yet totally free from sort of that black dog of sin barking at us and chasing us. Okay, so it's already not yet. As we look into Revelation 21, the already not yet is replaced by an already and accomplished. Okay, the full reality of our inheritance. Again, a great high mountain. The glory of God has been associated with mountains before. Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. Mount Nebo when Moses was able to first see the promised land. Sort of you have these covenant promises all along. And now John is taken up to a high mountain, this elevated perspective, and he sees a city coming down. Look at uh, verse 10, the latter part. After it says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the, look at this description, the holy city, Jerusalem. That, that is an oxymoron to us, isn't it? Holy and city. The cities we live in can be described in many ways, but not holy. For example, Washington, political cesspool, organized crime at the highest levels, it's not a holy city. Los Cabos, Mexico, ranked the most dangerous city in the world due to its murder rate, is not a holy city. Four cities in the United States are counted among the world's most dangerous cities because of their homicide rates. St. Louis, Baltimore, New Orleans, and Detroit. 
These are not, and some of you are thinking, I already see, where's Chicago on that list? Chicago has elevated and unwarranted shootings, right? And and a seeming numb and um, impotent law enforcement that's actually going in and taking care of that. But these four cities still rank the highest. Nairobi, Kenya, where we lived for five and a half years, has been not so affectionately nicknamed Nairobi because the theft is so bad. It's not a holy city. Even Jerusalem. Like when you put holy city Jerusalem together, Jerusalem's history tells you that it is anything but holy other than being set apart by God for a specific purpose. John saw this holy city coming down out of heaven from God. It can be holy. Why? Its origin is from who? God. It's coming down. John seemingly has gone to the highest point he can possibly get as a human, and the city is still coming down. Its origins are from God. Humanity adds nothing to the righteousness of Christ's bride. You hear this preached often. You hear this taught by other men and other women here. That we can add nothing to our own righteousness. It must be imputed. Christ gives to us His righteousness. And this is a reminder as we enter into the new city and the new heaven and the new earth that this city has its divine origin and and humanity adds nothing to it. It is from God. In the language of Ephesians 5, listen to this. It was Christ who, quote, gave Himself up for her. For who? For his bride, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It is the righteousness of Christ that is the basis for the holiness of this city that comes down from God. Look at verse 11. It says, it having the glory of God. And this is what John is going to expound on. He's going to expound on God's glory in this city. So uh, I think there's a percentage of us in here this morning when we start hearing about walls and gates and everything else, we're actually framing up and sketching in our minds the actual building. And yet what, God, what John is doing, what God is doing through John is trying to give you a picture of his glory through these, this vivid imagery of a city. It has the glory of God. And that sets the tone for the rest of the appearance of the city. First, look at verse 11. Its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Twice he uses the term like. It says if John, he's seeing this, He's overwhelmed. He can't quite find the right word to communicate what he's seeing. So he says it's like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The term for radiance has to do with light and brilliance. Second, notice he describes its strength and dignity with walls and gates and guardians and foundations. Let me ask you, why? Why? Why walls? Why gates? Why guardians? Think of, just pause and ask that question. Because walls are intended to keep people out or in, aren't they? 
Walls are in, in Jerusalem's history. Walls were meant to protect against siege and against enemies. So when, when you do a first or second read through this, you've got to start asking yourself, why does this place have walls? Are there enemies? Why are there gates? Gates are supposed to be closed to keep the enemy out, to keep its inhabitants safe. Why are there guardian angels standing there? Why do we need guards if there is no danger? Well, let's try to answer that. It says a great high wall. This, this calls to mind one of the saddest scenes in redemptive history in Genesis chapter 3. Let me just read a portion of that. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The original garden, the original paradise is now blocked. Man is driven out. And it's blocked by cherubim, angelic beings, and a flaming sword. And at this point, Adam must learn the hard way that God's word is true. Genesis 2.17, God said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Why walls here? Why wall? When this new city comes down, why are there walls? And why are there gates? We'll get to that. Twelve gates, three on each side, taken from Ezekiel 48, verses 30 to 35, uh, where the new temple also had twelve gates, three on each point of the compass. Here the emphasis seems to be on God's people, namely people, 21, verse 3, who have overcome, verse 7, chapter 21, the world, and so inherited the city of God. Okay, so why gates? We're going to get to that in a second, too. Foundations. How can a spiritual heavenly city have foundations? Look at verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Of course, on the gates were written the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel depicted by the gates and the church depicted by the foundation means the unifying of a single people of God. It is one bride, one wife. Let me read you Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, okay, outside the walls, outside the gates, but you are fellow citizens with the saints all together in one place and members of the household of God. Listen to what he says next in Ephesians. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure, okay, what structure? He's talking about the church being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you've got these walls, you've got these gates, you've got these foundations. Okay, remember... This description of the city, this appearance of the city, is meant to tell us something about the life to come. First of all, the city is brilliant, like nothing you have ever seen before. It's like this, it's like this, I can't quite explain it in terms that we know, it is magnificent. 
Second, the city is secure and can never be violated. That's, that's the imagery of the walls. That's the imagery of the gates. That's the imagery of the angelic guardians. Okay, here's, here's good news. There is no possibility in this new city of a serpent creeping in and whispering lies and causing the inhabitants of the city to question God's character and goodness. Nothing will ever enter this place and say, did God really say that? You you know what? You know, okay, I get it. That's because he knows. He knows that when you eat of it, you're going to be like him. Nothing will ever enter into that. The walls are imagery of complete protection from that kind of outside influence. The city we live in right now is full of envy and hatred and lies. Our city has taken on the image of what it worships at its base level. It's beastly. It may be hidden by technology, architecture, education, sports, and niceness, but at its core, it is godless. But the city to come is holy. And it's protected against defilement. That's why walls. That's why gates. There's no real enemy. It is a reminder that God is our refuge. God is our strength. The gates. Let me have you jump forward in our text. Look at verse 25. The gates have no need to be shut, for all enemies have been vanquished. Look at verse 25. There's nothing left to harm. And its gates will what? Never be shut by day. And you're like, well, what about night? And there will be no night there. So what is he communicating? The gates are always open. Complete access to God. So its gates and foundations communicate something. Twelve tribes in verse 12. Twelve apostles in verse 14. Israel of old. The Christian church now is comes together in one bride, one wife. And then the usage of the title of the Lamb. Isn't it interesting he doesn't say Jesus? Why does he say Lamb? It points to the work of Christ. It was the Lamb who was slain for sin... Entrance into this celestial city is based upon, as we sang this morning in several songs, Jesus Christ's blood alone. That's the appearance of the city. Let's look at the measurements and materials. Chapter 21, verse 15. I'm just going to read this and I want you to see why. uh, I want you to see the big idea of what John is communicating. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Six times what sort of what word is used in different forms. Measured. Measurement, measuring rod, human measurement. Okay, so that that sort of that Yoda statement at the end, right, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, means this. The angel used a human standard that we understand. He didn't use an unknown celestial measurement, like this is blown out of proportion and you're going to have to just determine on your own what it means. No, the angel actually used a human standard of measurement. 
Okay, so what, what stands out to you about the measurement? I had Art read in the New Living Translation this morning, which actually put it in feet to help us to understand how, how big it is. Okay, 12,000 stadia, long, wide, high. What shape is that? That is a perfect cube. A cube of approximately 1,500 miles on every side. There has never been a city like this. Let me, let me give you an example. 1,500 miles is basically the distance between Denver and Mexico City. Or between New York and Houston. And, and don't just think a line like an airplane flies. You've got to think it is 1,500, 1,500, 1,500 and it communicates something. John is conveying magnificence. Uh, okay. God's not putting us in an aquarium. Okay, see, we, we, think, we, we think like you know, Nicodemus, how can I be born again? Or like the woman at the well, give me water so I don't have to come back to the well anymore. And now we're thinking, oh, this is an aquarium. You know, no, no. God, so God through John is communicating something of magnificent size. But something more, and some of you need to be reminded of this, there is plenty of room for everyone. And that means you. If you would come through the single gate, which is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, the life, no one goes to the Father except if you go through Him. He said, but you have no idea what I've done or what scarred my life, or where my thoughts are now, if you go through Him, He is the door. He is the way. He is the light. He is the resurrection and the life. You have access to the city. And guess what? It's not crowded. There's plenty of room for everyone. Uh, what other commentators have noted is that this is the same shape as the Holy of Holies. Okay, so when the temple was designed and you had the outer court and then you had the inner court and then you had the holy place and then you had the holy of holies, um, this is a place, remember, when Jesus died, what happened? That there was a veil that kept the high priest out except for one day a year. That was the Day of Atonement when he would go in and he would offer incense and blood sacrifice on the mercy seat. And when Jesus died, that temple, that, that temple veil was torn from top to bottom, indicating that God had done it, not man. And there was complete access now, as we are all now in Christ, we are priests, and there is complete access. That is going to be finally realized in this city. Okay, so where there was this place that had the unique presence of God, the Holy of Holies. And only one man could go in there one time a year. You see how restrictive that is? Now there are three gates on each side of the city. And there's plenty of room for everyone. And the holy place, actually the holy of holies, listen to this, has become the living room. You can go out there anytime and be in the unique, absolute presence of God. That is an amazing picture of what is being unpacked here. 
In Revelation 11, John was told to take a measuring rod resembling a measuring reed resembling a rod and measure the temple and the altar and those who worship it. But here an angel takes a gold rod, which is the only appropriate measurement for a city of pure gold. 21 verse 18, whose street is made of gold. But there's something even more happening here. What does that measuring what does measuring indicate? My dad was a land surveyor. So I started land surveying when I was about 14 years old. And we would pull the 200 foot chain and we had to pull it tight with a plumb bob. And so you learn how to hold this steel chain and you're getting exact measurements with the plumb line. And if it's off a little bit at the end of the day, you get to do all your work over again. Right. So you set up the theodolite and you have a level and everything matters and you're tying it back in. Why? Demarcation and exact location. What does this measurement have to say to us about the new place? In Ezekiel 40, it is about the restoration of the land. But there's something more in all these passages. The measuring connotes God's ownership, close attention. Right. So when we would pull and I my my dad would say, hold it, you know, and you use tents. So he's got it down to this little I've got this plumb bob and I'm holding this 200 foot chain and there's a man on the other end holding it another. And when you have it tight and there's no sag in it, you say good. And you're trying not to shake. Close attention demarcation, exact measurement. God knows his city intimately, closely, everything about it, and it matters. There's an incredible attention by God himself here. And this is in keeping with the negatives of this section. So if he knows every single measurement of this place, he can say there are no tears in this place. There is no death. There is no pain. No evil. There's no sun or moon. No night. No impurity. No shame or deceit. God has removed them all. How does he know? He's measured every single part of it. There is close attention. In Revelation 11, the measuring referred to God's presence spiritually with his people in the midst of their trials. Here, the measuring of God is his final eternal presence and the removal of his trials. Look at the materials. The wall was built of jasper back in Revelation 4, 3. Let me read that. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. This has already been used. So the wall, the wording of the wall basically says it's not built with jasper blocks. It's a pure, bright, magnificent material. The wall is for demarcation not for defense. God has marked out the boundaries of this city. Look at verse 18. While the city was pure gold like clear glass. This is a heavenly city like nothing you have ever seen before. And if the city itself is made of gold, pure gold, what does that tell you about its owner? What does that tell you about the worth of God? What does that tell you about the delight of God? What does that tell you about the value of God? Look at the foundations in verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate. And you just go on all through this. 
Um, the, the stones, interestingly, appear in the same order as those in the high priest's breastplate in Exodus 28, verses 17 to 20. Uh, the commentator uh, Grant Osborne states, The church thus has, is seen at the end as the end-time Israel, and the high priestly imagery is linked with other texts where the saints are priests of God. This seems the most viable view. So what is this communicating? You have the twelve foundations, and on it are, are, are written the names of the apostles. Okay, which apostles? Even when they were down to eleven, they were called the twelve. Okay, but the apostles, the church, the gates, Israel, it's communicating the incredible worth of God's people, whom the gates, solid pearl, by the way, represent, and the foundations and the jewels throughout those represent. Look at the street, verse 21b. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. What do you notice about our streets? I'm just going to give our mind a rest here from going. Um, I notice delay, delays, um, detours, road work. On our parking lot, even the newest section I notice imperfections. Others of you have noticed imperfections. But there's something more intense. See, John sees in this city, it's pure gold without, without any imperfection. Um, but there's something more intended here. Um, and it seems to be a contrast with the street of the great city in Revelation 11, verse 8. It was in the city where they killed the two witnesses. Remember this? And they let their dead bodies lay in the streets. And they celebrated and they exchanged gifts and they did not bury them. Typically, the streets of the city signify impurity and evil. And this is just one of the many contrasts that come out of the book of Revelation. It seems to be a contrast between Babylon and this new city, the celestial city. So unlike the beast city where the streets flow with, with and signify evil, the purpose of this street is to signify and radiate the glory of God. Even the street radiates God's glory. Have you ever noticed a street? Like, oh, that's cool. Like when we were in Charleston, South Carolina, and you see the old cobbles, right? I'm like, oh, that, that's really neat. Right? It says something about the city. It says something about the history of the city. Okay? Um, but you're still not going to find cobblestone blocks in Fort Knox, Right? So, so the value of pure gold, it says something about the city and more than that, something about the history of redemption and something about the character of the one who keeps covenant and he keeps his promises. Let's go now to the final part, the conditions in the city. Chapter 21, verse 22. And the rest of the chapter now provides a glimpse of the holiness, glory, and joy that will typify life in the eternal city. And it consists of a series of negative statements. Uh, it, it comes out like this. There is no temple. Okay? There is no darkness. There is no concern. There is no unclean thing. And then it gives you a reason why that's the case. So let's look at the first one. A series of negative statements telling us what life in this new city will be like. Look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. There is no need for a human temple made with hands. 
What did the temple do anyway? Hebrews says it is a shadow of things to come. Okay, when, the shadow, when you see a shadow, you typically turn around to see the reality. You don't start engaging and talking with the shadow. You, you look for what it's actually representing. Okay, so the temple was a shadow of things to come. In some ways, the church is too. The gathered, unifying people of God across classes, across backgrounds, across ethnic diversities. All of us come together as one. It is a shadow of a day when we will live in complete unity as one people of God. The shadow of the temple cast in the Old Testament is now fulfilled by the reality of God's presence. Throughout the Old Testament, God's glory filled the temple. Let me read you a few of these quickly. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It filled the tent. In 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the glory of the Lord Filled his temple. Ezekiel 43, 1 to 5. He's brought to the final eschatological temple. And he says that God's glory filled the temple. It's not so much the temple as it is what? The overwhelming fullness of the presence and the glory of God. Guess what? In the new city, there's no need for a temple. Do you know why? You have the overwhelming full presence of God and he never leaves. So when you see no temple, that is good news. There will never feel like a time when the heavens are brass and God doesn't hear you. There will never be a time when God seems so far away, when he seems silent, he is right there in his fullness. So there's no need for a temple because God is the temple. John then uses uh, titles in quick succession portraying the splendor of God. Uh, Look back at that. He says, Uh, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. Listen to Jesus' words, because there's a sense in which we can experience that now. Jesus said this in John 17, 3, in his high priestly prayer. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Let me ask just a simple question. Are you experiencing eternal life right now? When people enter into your life, when they rub up against your life, are you experiencing, do you give a sense, an aroma of eternal life? Christ said, this is eternal life, that they know you. Have you grown in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter said? Have you practiced the presence of God, that he is there all the time? That they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Look at the next negative. Look at verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. And again, you're thinking, oh no, sunrises, sunsets. That's how I feel when I look at the text and I have to remind myself, wait a minute. Whatever it is, it's better. It's more glorious. It's more beautiful. Okay, it has no need for that, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Listen to Isaiah 60, uh, verse 19, which seems to be what this is built on. Isaiah writes, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. 
but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. You know, there's there's more than just light happening here. There is a there is a morality being communicated that there is nothing morally dark that will be in this city. It's what John writes in a smaller letter. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Look at verse 25. No concern, no enemies. John captures it in two ways. And its gates will never be shut by day. For, here's the reason, and there will be no night there. Again, some of you probably love your sleep and you're thinking, no night? Remember, it's better. All the great delights you have right now, they're going to be so much better in the new city, in the new heaven, and the new earth. Um, night here see, means there's no need to close the gates. There are no security issues. There is no theft. Night is often when evil deeds prosper. John 3.19, Jesus said this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Again, it's a reminder uh, where God is the light. It's morally clean and pure and holy and nothing can defile. Then finally, look at verse 26. No unclean thing. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. There's this pilgrimage imagery where everybody's going to the city. And and when they get there through Christ, they find that the gates are what? Open. And it doesn't matter which direction they came because there's three gates on each side and they are open. And it is built upon God's promises in the Old Testament, the tribes of Israel, and his promises to the church through the apostles, the foundations. And when you get there, the gates are open and there are there's this dignity of angelic guards. And when you go in, you're going to find out what? You know, that 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 somebody else got a bigger mansion than you. People write about this stuff and you like get a condo on the back part of the cube. Really? Really? Folks that... That's so material, right? It just shows you where the treasure of the heart is. No, when you get there, it's huge. There's plenty of room for you. And if you came through Christ, it doesn't matter what point on the compass you arrive at. The gates are open and there's plenty of room. And you never get there too late because there's no what? There's no dark. And there's no evil. This is truly a holy city It is heaven. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, this pilgrimage, this ascribing worth to God, not the city. It's not like they start worshiping the city. They're worshiping the presence of God, the temple. But here's the warning. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This theme has come up several times. The Lamb's book written Before the foundation of the world, chapter 17, verse 8. It contains the names of true believers, those who are in Christ, who have His righteousness. That's the only way you get in. I mean, if nothing unclean gets in, and all have sinned, there's only one way to get in. That's through Jesus Christ, His righteousness. This is modeled after the Old Testament register of the citizens of Israel, where they kept names It came to be known as a heavenly book in which the names of the righteous are kept. And on that basis, your name, as you are in Christ, the gates are open. Let me just read one verse out of Revelation 22 and I'll pray. 
Blessed are it's a beatitude. Revelation ends with a beatitude. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may, listen to this, that they may enter the city by the gates. If you were to die, and morally good people die, everyone dies. War heroes and college students and children Die. Have you washed your robe? Do you have entrance to this city? Will you live eternally in the presence of God and enjoy Him forever? How do you wash your robe? It already answered that in Revelation. They washed their robes in what? The blood of the Lamb. Let's pray.